thank you so much, Shannon, for, for joining me today. Really excited to talk about your journey first from maybe your education and sort of being a scientist background and kind of coming into the world of business. Talk about that that journey. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks very much for having me here, Grant. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up with three dogs and three cats, and I developed a really close relationship with animals at a young age. For that reason, I, I stopped eating meat in my early uh, in my early teens for the reason that, yeah, I, I was really for animal welfare reasons. And then I started volunteering with animal rescues in my late teens, and then that continued throughout my adulthood. I'm a scientist by training, so I did my master's and, and my PhD in biochemistry, and I I didn't ever really see any way academic or science career to sort of merge with, I was doing a lot of uh, volunteer, uh, volunteering at the time of my PhD uh, with Cat Rescue, and um, I didn't ever really see any opportunity for those worlds to, to merge. And then I was, I moved to California and I was working as a postdoc at Stanford. And it was really when I was, yeah, yeah I had the opportunity to work in this sort of magical place in the world where, you know, yeah. anything and everything is possible in the Bay Area. And, um, and that's really when I decided that, you know, I, I, I want to take animals out of the supply chain. And the best way for me to do that, as I saw, as I saw it was to use my scientific knowledge. Um, and that would be to create a food that served as an alternative to animal based products. Um, and of course, first, I thought I would venture into the the human, uh, the field of uh, human food, um, because sure. of course humans are the main consumers of animal-based products. But as I started to dig in a little, a little further and started to think about things more critically, as somebody who has not hadn't eaten meat for more than half of my life, I, I, there are lots of products that are available for me, but nonetheless, I'm I'm hamstrung by by feeding my cats and dogs right. uh, because they're all animal-based foods. And then I thought, well, gosh, okay, you know, this, there's a real opportunity here um, to maybe move the needle, but really, is it going to? Because pet food, how much does it actually contribute to the animal agriculture industry in terms of sustaining it? And that was really when I was kind of blown away um, mm -hmm. around the statistics. Yeah. And when I learned that you know, 50% of an animal um, is not consumed by people. And so the rest of the, that 50% of the animal is then um, shunted into pet food. But in addition to that, there's also a, a not insignificant portion um, of of meat or carcasses referred to as fallen animals. Um, this is otherwise known as 4D meat or animals that are dead, diseased, dying, and disabled. Mm -hmm. These are basically animals that never make it to slaughter. So they might die in transit, suffocation, or dehydration. And if an animal dies before it's slaughtered, it cannot be sold for human food. So these carcasses, rather than the industry paying to have them disposed of as biohazardous waste because they're heavily contaminated hmm. um, by bacteria, Area, the industry is actually able to um, make a profit off of them. And so, and in fact, in Canada and the US, in terms of the number, it's, it's 25, 25 million tons of, um, of these, this car these carcasses or, or fallen meat, uh, fallen animals and rendered ingredients are then sent to the animal, to these rendering facilities, which then basically subject this heavily contaminated meat to really high heats and pressures, sterilizes the meat, and it forms this sort of goop that's then used for hmm. pet food. 
So at that point, I thought I, I realized like, wow, you know, there's there's really not an insignificant uh, amount of of meat that's actually dedicated to pet food. And but because nobody's actually looking at this, this is really the best opportunity from my perspective to to move the needle because as long as pet food is still an outlet for animal agriculture animal agriculture will still exist. That is really, really interesting. So when you went through all this research, what was sort of the the first steps um, that you took? Being at Stanford, did you go to sort of business department there? Like what were the next steps coming from scientist background, dedicating your life to to educating yourself up to that point? How was the transition to becoming a founder and, and a CEO? Yeah, I mean, I was I was incredibly naive and I just had this attitude that I was I was going to do this and um, yeah. and I had made up my mind and so actually I very quickly within within a month of deciding that this is what I was going to do, I quit my postdoc and so Stanford wow. was never never involved in in actually forming the company. I I I I quit my postdoc and then started the company and sort of got going pretty much on, on my own initially, but in the very, very early days. And then I quickly connected with my co-founder, uh, Joshua Eret, who has an MBA and a background in finance and, and entrepreneurship. And actually he had spent also many years in animal rescue, cat rescue specifically, um, as had I, and he had just finished his MBA. So when we um, when we came together, yeah, we were both looking for this opportunity to, to use our own respective training in a way that would help to take animals out of the supply chain. Then we we came together and it was really just, it was really one of these, I mean, every, every founder or every startup has a very, very unique story. And ours is, is really one of those, you know, we just, <laughs> uh, we just started working from the ground up. We didn't, in the early days, we had no, we didn't know anybody. We had no help. We just sort of slogged our way through it. And um, <laughs> a year later, we got our first product on the market. That's the um, a, a probiotic-based supplement, one for dogs, one for cats. And yeah, we we chose to actually start with making foods, nutritious foods for pets made with other cultured ingredients that people are already um, familiar with the health benefits of, because probiotics are actually, these bacteria are grown inside of a bioreactor in, in a very similar way to how we will, how we grow cultured meat. So we wanted to make sure that we started by building up a brand and gaining con- consumer trust and awareness by basically, you know, telling the story of, of how we're making cultured meat and using these other proxy ingredients to do it. So yeah, we got our first product in the market and slowly, slowly one, one foot in front of the other, um, one product and another product and eventually investment. And then we went from a team of um, just the two of us. And I think now there's uh, 15 of us. So wow. uh, yeah, it's been um, it's been it's been a hard road, but yeah, very very typical ups and downs as startups do all of them face. When you get into these conversations with maybe just people who ask, like, what is what is because animals? Like, how do you, how do you talk to them about it? How do you explain it to them? Because I'm sure it's not oh, we're just a pet food company. That, that I would imagine you you might go a little deeper than that. So how do you usually explain it to people where they can kind of get the entire grasp of of what the the company and the vision of it and the mission is? Yeah, so we basically explain ourselves as as the only company that is currently working to make a food that it, it really is the only truly environmentally sustainable, humane meat based pet food. And so although our our food, our 
our food eventually will not be made with animal-based meat. What we are creating is meat. Uh, it is not a meat alternative. We are making cultured meat. Um, the alternative part comes in that we are making it in an alternative way. So rather than making, raising and slaughtering an animal for meat, we first take some cells from an animal and that animal then goes on to continue to live out the rest of its life. And then we grow those cells separately outside of the hmm. animal. So it is still meat, but it is a environmentally sustainable and humane meat. And to this day, meat, the current meat that exists, because cultured meat is not currently on the market, current meat, no matter no matter how it's marketed, uh, it's neither environmentally sustainable, nor is it humane. I mean, animals can be raised differently before slaughter. Um, and so that can make it more or less humane, but ultimately the practice of actually slaughtering an animal for its, for its flesh is, one can argue, is, is ultimately mm -hmm. not the humane thing to do. The ultimate vision is sort of to take meat out the supply chain but not take meat out of the edible supply chain, I guess, if, if you will, on how, you know, pets eat. And, and I've had some really, really great conversations around cellular agriculture, let, let, let's call it. it. It's really, it seems like this is going to be what the future holds is that we can take DNA or cells out of an animal that's on a farm or whatever, wherever it may live and sort of have it live happily ever after, so to speak, right? And there's not this sort of, it initially has a potential to eliminate slaughter of animals, correct? Am I sort of reading that right in a sort of best case scenario? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, cultured meat is, is uh, it can be made, um, yeah, in a way that does not, does not, is not harmful for animals and certainly does not result in their slaughter. So, and we would take, we take more than the DNA. We actually take, um, we actually take the entire cell, the sample of mm -hmm. the entire cells. Um, so the DNA itself you can get a lot of you can get all the genetic information from a cell but the actual cell itself uh is still sort of this biological unit so when we take a cell or a small collection of cells we can continue to grow them um and grow them indefinitely hmm. um, we never have to go back to the animal to take more of those cells we can take those cells in a one we do take those cells in a one-time scenario and then they serve as the the basis for all future growth so you're saying that just one extraction of a cell and that would be like what a prick of an animal just like a human would give sort of blood like how is it extracted is it very simple and painless for us we started actually with mouse mouse being the ancestral mm -hmm. diet of the cat so in the wild cats eat mice they eat small birds and insects although currently there are no there are no commercial pet foods selling a mouse-based diet but rather chicken and seafood and bovine mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those are also the main allergens for our cats and dogs so in making cultured meat we really saw this as an opportunity to grow the protein source that's more evolutionarily appropriate for our pets mm. so we started with mouse for cats and um, and we did this by taking some cells uh, from the ear of, of, of three mice that we then they were they would have otherwise been used for research purposes and we so we adopted them uh, and they then were moved to a, a nice mouse a plush mouse house in the home <laughs> uh, one of our stem cell scientists and so basically it was you know like having your ear pin uh, pierced um, so taking cells uh, okay cells um, like that and uh and as i say yeah there was there were three mice and um two years later actually unfortunately one of the mice um just last week uh passed away of of natural causes but it was three two years and which is actually quite a quite a ripe old age for a mouse so they lived hmm. um, the other two are, are still doing well and yeah enjoying their 
mouse house. The plush mouse house. <laughs> yeah, and uh, seeds and fruit every day. So when we talk about, I guess, the future, and you said there's currently not, I guess, any consumer products sort of available for, for pets and, and humans, I believe, for cultured meat quite yet. How long do you think it will be before products are allowed to be on the market where a consumer can buy, you know, cultured meat, pet food, right, for their dog or their cat? Well, we're really, um, I mean, we're... At the moment, we're the only ones who are making um, the cultured meat uh, pet food, and we're we're really, really pushing for some initial products to be available uh, in definitely small batch, but nonetheless in 2022. And so that would be um, pending regulatory approval. And, and we're, yeah, we're talking to certainly as many regulatory authorities as possible to see basically move, move quickly wherever we, we are able to, um, wherever we're granted approval first. Right now, Just uh, was last December, so December of 2020, they were the first company to receive regulatory approval of their cultured chicken in Singapore. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there is a restaurant in Singapore that does make, uh, to my knowledge, it's a, it's a hybrid product uh, that includes cultured chicken from Just, but that's at a restaurant. Yeah, at the moment, there are no consumer packaged goods or no, um, you can't order order a cultured meat-based product online or, or buy it in the grocery stores, for example, uh, anywhere in the world. So, but I think certainly with in, in the next couple of years, you'll see that change uh, as both because animals and other uh, other companies have been making really great progress and strides towards that, blazing that regulatory path. When you talk to just leaders or or even, I don't know if you have conversations with, with farmers or I guess industry executives or, or just people within it, right, who have used kind of the, the age-old approach of, of how to make sort of food and meat, right, that's sort of processed and maybe obviously not sort of sustainable or or even humane in a lot of areas. Do you have conversations with like, how does the feedback with this sort of new technology and sort of new vision of how things should look and work? Is there sort of, you know, negative feedback, positive feedback? Is there, what's, what's sort of the temperature like within the industry as, you know, this is coming, right? It's not if, it's just when. I don't think that there's a, a really good relationship between large, big animal agriculture and this new technology, mm-hmm. um, biotechnology um, that's coming through the pipeline. I would say it's it's following a similar trajectory as has been observed with milk. And so certainly the, the dairy industry opposing plant-based milks or soy milk, oat milk being referred to as milk. And I know that there is, uh, yeah, there has been opposition um, to cultured meat being referred to at all as meat. So the tone is quite similar to what we've seen with the dairy industry. Do you see it getting better at all? As far as like, it's almost like gas automobiles versus electric automobiles. There was such a tug of war for so long and such a battle, right, of trying to just never allow electric cars on the scene and then all of a sudden it just it will be the norm do you see Mm -hmm. that sort of same sort of journey for for maybe cultured meat i think it will eventually become the norm only because the globe has an infinite amount of space and resources and we simply cannot continue to to reproduce at the at the rate that we are and uh, so basically to see the kind of population growth that we've been seeing at the same time, raising all of the, growing the crops to then feed the animals are then being slaughtered for, for the meat. Um, it, eventually, it's just, it's just not a, it's not a proposition that can go on indefinitely. So whether or not 
people want to embrace cultured meat, uh, eventually there just won't be an option. Um, we cannot continue to go down the road that we have been doing. So I do see it as being inevitable. I don't know that the, the industries will ever be friendly towards one another. I mean, I think that, you know, some folks are, of course, wanting to have conversations and, and trying to make this as friendly as possible. But ultimately, I, I mean, I, I think that the, probably the meat industry, big agriculture feels quite threatened and, and, and perhaps is not a big fan of maybe they feel judged by, you know, the, the way that mm -hmm. um, they, yeah. they've been by their, their livelihood. And uh, at the same time, I'd say this, this current industry, cultured meat for some folks and, and myself being one of them. Yeah. I mean, really, really unhappy with, I don't see a place in the world for maintaining the type of industry that I, I don't see, I don't see raising and slaughtering, slaughtering animals for food as, as being justified um, when we have an option or an opportunity right. to do things another way. That's full stop. And I guess it always goes back to sort of the regulatory, I guess, hurdles that it faces is right now, is it just a safety issue, right? Is it just going through the proper testing, getting things approved? no different than any other sort of anything that somebody's putting in their body, right? Or, or a pet putting in their body. Is it simply a safely, safety issue at the moment? And once that's sort of approved, then we'll see sort of the floodgates open and, and sort of this industry kind of boom. I'd say the bigger challenge right now is actually the scaling. So um, mm -hmm. certainly the regulatory piece and, and confirming the safety. Um, I mean, that's the first thing that has to happen. But but frankly, you know, being sort of in the weeds of this technology, I can say that as, as I mentioned, this really, you know, meat is what we're growing is not, it is not actually a new product. It is the same product that people have been eating. Um, right. it, it's just that it's made in a different way. And in fact, we can, you know, even make the argument that it's safer because we grow that meat without the inclusion of any antibiotics yep. or hormones, which are of course commonly used in animal agriculture. So we can say that, yeah, we're standing, we stand to make a, a better, safer, healthier product for our pets and for humans too. So the regulatory piece, I don't think will be, um, yeah, it, we, we all have to certainly dot our I's and cross our T's, which everyone is doing, or most people and they all ought to be doing. But I think the real challenge and any any um, lag will just come in the scaling, the scaling process, because the infrastructure to actually create all of this meat has not yet been, um, right. has not been developed. And that's going to take a little bit of time, but not too much time. Essentially, you have to build a new supply chain from scratch. Uh, yeah. And that will, yeah. That will take, that'll take a while. And that is, and that is because you would need a facility, like, I guess, if you could, as much as you can walk us maybe through the process of, of how, uh, you know, a cell is taken from an animal, right? And then it goes into a typical laboratory, like us layman's would picture a laboratory in like a big building procured through that. And that, that takes time to sort of the cell to mature from a cell to then actually like a meat. And, and that obviously takes time too. So I guess walk us through the process of scaling is investment into the industry that then allows to build these laboratories across the world eventually. So although we are working in a lab right now to actually basically work on bringing the cost down, so refine mm -hmm. refine the, the media or the, the nutrient blend that is used to grow the cells and, uh, and then identify, you know, just basically the best way to grow the cells in with the, the nutrient composition that, um, that is most native to the cells or that they're happiest with. So we are in the lab doing that, but certainly once we when we're in a position to make that meat for food, um, it no longer happens in a lab, but in a manufacturing facility that would be 
you know, the same as any other manufacturing facility that's used to, for example, uh, you know, grow yeast for beer or, or um, that's what I was picturing. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Or ferment um, probiotics for um, bacteria for probiotics. So it would be um, a manufacturing facility and those manufacturing facilities or the specific infrastructure. So although the bioreactors to grow yeast and, um, and micro uh, bacteria, um, just microbes in general, they exist and we certainly are leveraging those right now. There needs to be some tweaking that's that's done on these current bioreactors because they were not designed or, or built specifically for cell culture. Um, I mean, microbial cell, but not, um, not a mouse cell or a chicken cell or a uh, a beef cell. So there needs to be modifications. Um, and I'd say, you know, that's what folks are working on right now. So the specific bioreactors and are being are being developed. Um, and then of course, just the space. I mean, actually, yeah, then then retrofitting any existing spaces or, or building new spaces to then um, to then serve as these manufacturing facilities. So it is as basic as, okay, now we have these cells. And when you take these cells and you put them in some liquid, it, it would be sort of like it would be a liquid in, in the body in the same way that cells mm-hmm. would grow in a the body. They're growing, they're obtaining the same nutrients just outside of the body. But from the perspective of the, of the cell, it doesn't look any different in that you know the same nutrients are surrounding them. Um, they're continuing to grow in this vessel that's warm and allows for gas exchange, just like in a body. And so they grow. Um, and so you, as they continue to grow, eventually, you know, you're generating more and more mass. Um, and then that mass is harvested. And and for us in pet food, because we're not worried about it, I'd say some of the human food industry uh, companies, they have it, 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 it's more tough for them because they actually need to say, for example, create a steak that looks like a steak and sits mm-hmm. on the grill and sits right. like a steak. Right. So, they really need to create that three-dimensionality and that structure that we at Because Animals don't need to do because we are only concerned about the nutritional value of our of our cells. So they don't need to have that complex scaffolding that some of the human food uh, companies will, will need to have in order to really tantalize their customers. So for us, it's really just about taste and nutrition. So we can grow those cells without, without that complicated um, structural piece. And so when they have that nutrition, soundness then that's that's all we that's all we need and then we can blend it with other ingredients if we choose um such as that are already in pet food to make a kibble or wet food pate or Mm -hmm. something that Mm -hmm. pets and pet parents are already familiar with so it really doesn't look cultured meat although it i think it's often referred to as lab-grown meat in reality It will be made in a, in a manufacturing, food grade manufacturing facility that is no different from how current food products are, are made and manufactured. And even food products like Doritos, for example, I mean, they were developed in a lab um, right. and, and then were eventually shifted to a manufacturing facility once at scale. So any food, you know, unless you're just you know, plucking the apple from the tree, it is developed in a food lab and then it's transitioned to a manufacturing facility. So cultured meat really doesn't look any different than our current food industry practices. Going back to a little bit of the company and sort of the the vision for for sort of the future, will you want to be in stores or do you want to do everything sort of direct to consumer or or is it going to be a blend? Oh, yeah, I'd say a blend. I mean, we are, our mission really is to get our products into the hands of as many 
people as possible because our mission is to displace those um, those animal meat-based products. So we'll uh, certainly sell directly online from our own site. Um, right now, we also sell our, our current products on Amazon and, and Chewy.com, as well as a handful of stores. And, and we're, we're working our way getting into more stores. So yeah, the intent is to, is to certainly be available uh, as widely as possible, both in brick and mortar and online. So I'll end a little bit on the future here. And I know the future is, is really, really, it's determined by a lot of different factors, specifically in, in this industry with so much going on. But, you know, let's try to look three to five years down the line. What does success look like? For me and my co-founder, I'd say certainly success for us means actually being at a point where we can quantify, um, make a dent, make a dent, even <laughs> if it's a small one initially, um, make a dent in, um, in, say, for example, the amount of meat uh, or those rendered ingredients that are being purchased for pet food. If we then are replacing those ingredients with our ingredients, then that is success. Well, thank you so much, Shannon. Really, really interesting topic and interesting industry and an interesting journey that you've taken to kind of try to disrupt a, a massive, massive industry that, you know, we all use, you know, I have a I have a dog and, you know, everybody I know, I think has a pet or, or some sort of, or ha has had a pet in, in their life. Mm -hmm. um, so it affects all of us, you know, and, and I think that as we see how technology can maybe be a nuisance in, in, in some sectors of our world, you know, it, it's going to be a positive in, in the way we, we move mobility wise. And now sort of with our food industry being completely disrupted by a lot of different positive factors. Um, so I appreciate your work and best of luck this year, of course, and, and you know, hopefully the decades to come and, and really just sort of hit the ground running and, and hopefully we can, we can see because animals in, in stores everywhere. So I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Grant. I, I really appreciate chatting with you and, um, and for the opportunity today.